Welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new friends in the Canary Islands have done. I have no idea why you're listening to a podcast instead of splashing around in the Atlantic, but thank you very much for listening. And of course, if you write us a five-star review, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. One quick note up front, in the coming weeks we're going to have some more guest co-hosts on the show, some who have been here before and some who have not, but I think you're going to enjoy it, so definitely stay tuned for that because we're getting into a really fun stretch here in 1998. This week, however, it'll just be me, and on that note, let's jump into Raw. It is Monday, June 8th, 1998, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the Metro Center in Rockford, Illinois. We open on a bit of a sad note as we get a memorial montage for Sylvester Ritter, a.k.a. the Junkyard Dog, who was killed in a car accident when he fell asleep at the wheel on June 2nd, the day this episode of Raw was taped. He was only 45 years old. JYD is credited with having broken the color barrier in wrestling, becoming the first African-American wrestler to be made the top star of a promotion, in this case the Universal Wrestling Federation. JYD's final televised appearance was one month prior, on May 3rd, 1998, at ECW's Wrestlepalooza event, and I mention this because our pals at the New Blood Rising podcast recently covered that very same show just about a week and a half ago. Feel free to give that a listen if you want to hear about the final event where you can see the Junkyard Dog. Cue up the opening theme song, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Not too many noteworthy signs tonight, but two of them stuck out to me. One simply said, Vince is the devil, and there was another one which said, McMahon is a cocksucker, which was prominently on display all night because it was across from the hard camera. Apparently, in 1998, there was not much sign censorship going on. We begin the show in a very familiar way, with Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe walking to the ring, but this week they are all dressed in tuxedos. Vince begins by saying that tonight he is a humble man, and he thanks the fans for making Raw the most-watched sports entertainment show on television. He says that the fans only know the Vince McMahon they see on TV, the brilliant man who occasionally displays his Herculean strength, but tonight we will all get to meet the real Vince McMahon, a man of caring and generosity. And, as a result of his many contributions to charity, later tonight at a black-tie affair, he will be named the Humanitarian of the Year. Interestingly, Vince then says that he has extended an invitation for Stone Cold Steve Austin to join that event as well, and clearly nothing can possibly go wrong in that scenario. Vince, Patterson, and Briscoe then leave the ring, which means our opening segment this week was surprisingly brief. In fact, we then segue directly into our first match of the evening, a King of the Ring qualifying match between Kama Mustafa and Ken Shamrock. 
You may recall that Shamrock returned last week after a one-month absence, attacking Owen Hart as payback for Owen snapping his ankle on the April 27th episode of Raw. Before the match, Kama's Nation of Domination pals were ordered to head backstage, so it appears that he will have to go it alone tonight. A quick fun fact, he is now being billed as the godfather of the nation, Kama, but after tonight's match, from now on, he will only be referred to as the godfather. I wonder how that will work out for him. Short match here, but it was actually pretty even for the most part, as Kama spent the majority of it working on Shamrock's injured left ankle. But speaking of ankles, Shamrock scored the win when Kama knocked him to the canvas, then bounced off the ropes to deliver some move, but Shamrock grabbed the godfather's leg and put him into the ankle lock to score the tap-out victory. Immediately after the match ended, D'Lo Brown ran into the ring to attack Shamrock, but for the second week in a row, Dan the Beast Severn came to Ken Shamrock's rescue. The commentators played it up as though Severn may have just been wanting to get a piece of D'Lo because the two of them will fight in a King of the Ring qualifier later tonight, but it appears that Severn and Shamrock are developing a mutual level of respect, perhaps due to the fact that they have battled each other in UFC a couple times. Shamrock will now move on to the next round of the King of the Ring tournament, where the world's most dangerous man will face the world's strongest man, Mark Henry, in a battle of two men with lying nicknames. Jim Ross then tells us that this past Friday, the WWF held an event at Madison Square Garden where it was announced that MSG will be hosting this year's SummerSlam just about two and a half months from now. With that in mind, the WWF sent D-Generation X out into the streets of New York City to interact with the residents of the Big Apple, which, in this case, had good and bad results. Are you going to SummerSlam? You know SummerSlam? Have you seen Godzilla? You have seen him? Is his foot as big as that sign? Oh, I think so. Oh, you're Jimmy Davis Jr. Now do the talk to you. See, but I came back. Oh, yeah. Next time you park your car in that zone, I'm giving you a bigger ticket. Hey, did you know SummerSlams at the car? I got tickets already. He already got tickets at SummerSlam. See, our promotional stuff works. He's already got tickets. New York's finest. Do you have a copy of the Pakistani magazine? Is Johnny Five still alive? Pakistan. Uh, God bless America. Now I know why they call this the Big Apple. New York City with Ted Turner. Oh, no kid. Right here. Ted, have you seen Jane? No, not today. I saw her down on that one street. What was it? 40 seconds. 40 seconds. 40 seconds. Yeah. This right. is deep rest city in the world. Amen. Well, Maybe. She's working oh, over there. Yeah. <laughs> a little aerial. She's action working over there. Yeah. For some quick context there, some of what you heard was Triple H asking two separate Asian people about Godzilla while using a stereotypical Japanese accent. Then he asked a Middle Eastern store owner if he had a copy of Pakistani magazine while using a stereotypical Indian accent. DX also talked to an African-American man who looked like Sammy Davis Jr., and they asked him to dance for them. Yikes. However, on the plus side, they did find a guy who looked like Ted Turner, and they got a woman to show her breasts. So there's that. After a commercial break, it is now time for a tag team match. Steve Blackman and Farouk versus Mark Merrow and Jeff Jarrett. 
Mero is accompanied by his new valet Jacqueline, while Double J is accompanied by greatest character ever Tennessee Lee, but strangely not Southern Justice, who were just debuted as his new bodyguards last week. Interestingly, Mero and Jarrett are teaming together, even though they will actually be facing each other in the next round of the King of the Ring, and they are tagging against the two men that they each beat to advance in the tournament last week. This was an alright match, which ended with a bit of confusion from the heel team. Mero was on the ring apron talking with Jacqueline, and Jarrett went over to the corner to tag him, but Mero's back was turned. That enabled Farouk to shove Jarrett into his partner, knocking Mero to the floor, and Blackman then capitalized on the collision by rolling up Double J for the pinfall. After the match, Jarrett and Mero then yelled at each other, with Tennessee Lee and Jacqueline also getting in on the act. It seems like a strange decision to build up a mid-card heel versus heel feud, since the crowd hates both of them and neither one will be turning face anytime soon, but hey, that's Vince Russo for you. Next up, we get more footage of DX in New York City, and I'll edit this clip down mainly to the parts where they attempt more terrible accents. They got a Wendy's, a McDonald's, a Sbarro's, and a Triple X Adult Entertainment Center. What do you say? We we grab a slice of pie. The Ticketmaster and uh, Peep World, I think, is the Ticketmaster and your local Peep World. You know they got a slice. Would like to claim this ball in the name of Ireland. Freedom! This is where Vince McMahon, this shot. You, you know Vince McMahon? He you got choked here all the time, right? If I food that, does that start your motor? Can you take us to Pakistan? Hey, this flat right, flat right to Pakistan. What the hell are you doing on lunch break, now? You keep snake in there? In case you need a recap of that, you could hear Road Dog walking into a bar and imitating Mel Gibson's Scottish brogue from Braveheart, but for some reason he claimed the bar for Ireland. Go figure. You could also hear him attempting an Italian accent when he walked into a local clothing store, but Triple H, good lord, he's really doubling down on that Indian accent. In this clip, you can hear him asking a foreign cab driver to take him to Pakistan, which is pretty bad, but then it somehow gets worse. When Hunter encounters a man wearing a turban, he asks if pulling it will start his motor and if the man keeps a snake under it. Holy shit. Some of the things he says in these clips are so horrendous that, well, I guess it could win him the presidency of the United States. Back in the arena, and it's time for our next match, a King of the Ring qualifier between Owen Hart and Scorpio. A sunglasses-wearing Owen walks to the ring with D'Lo, Mark Henry, and Kama, but before they get very far down the ramp, a bunch of referees get in their way and tell the other Nation of Domination members to head backstage, which happened earlier tonight as well and has pretty much been happening every single week lately. Clearly, the Nation just isn't getting the message here. As for the match itself, this was a really enjoyable five-minute match between two quality in-ring performers. The match ended when Scorpio went for a moonsault, but Owen moved out of the way, causing Scorpio to land legs first on the canvas. Owen then took advantage of this by working over Scorpio's legs and putting him in the sharpshooter, resulting in a submission victory and advancing Owen in the King of the Ring tournament. As soon as the match ends, we immediately cut backstage, where we see The Undertaker entering the arena. Just like last week, he's wearing sunglasses and black sweatpants, but this week he's also sporting a bandana with his hair braided in the back. Yes, for the second week in a row, the WWF appears to be dead set on killing any mystique The Undertaker had left. Taker immediately walks to Vince McMahon's office, where a police officer was standing guard. Not phased by this, Taker just throws the cop out of the way and barges inside. 
but there is no one there. I hope assaulting an officer of the law was worth it. We then segue back into the arena for our next match, Puke versus Chains. Now, if you're watching this on the WWE Network, you'll notice that the match just begins with draws and chains already in the ring as though they both got the jobber entrance. However, on the original broadcast of Raw, we did actually get to see Draws' entrance, but while he was coming to the ring, the WWF played some NFL footage, which showed how he got his nickname, Puke. Take a listen to the commentary from Dick Enberg and Bob Trumpy, yes, Trumpy, as well as a quick soundbite at the end from Hall of Fame coach Joe Gibbs. Dolphins' Bernie Parmalee hit by Darren Drozdoff. He's one of the real characters, this guy. He's a tattoo man. That was a gift, a Christmas gift from his girlfriend, a tribal uh, type thing. And this one I like, the barbed wire with a bull. I'm going to get one of those. We just got a report that Drozdoff already has ruined uh, one play. Uh, he gets a little excited and uh, kind of tossed his cookies on the... Uh... He and the ball had to come on for repairs. <laughs> I can't believe we showed that. <laughs> well, you know, I saw Darren down there throw up on the ball. I, I, I almost threw up on the way into the stadium here. So anyway, for the record, this draws chains match is not a King of the Ring qualifier. It's a loser must remove the letter Z from his name match. Okay, not really, but it should be. During this match, Jim Ross and Michael Cole are talking about The Undertaker showing up at the arena, and it is at this point that we are informed that at the King of the Ring pay-per-view, it will be The Undertaker versus Mankind in a Hell in a Cell match. So mark that one down, folks. The most iconic Hell in a Cell match of all time was announced during a Draws-Chains match. And speaking of that match, it ended in a rather surprising way. Draws went for a splash in the corner, but Chains moved out of the way. He then picked Draws up and hit him with a Death Valley driver, which was enough to score the three count. And so, in Draws' first singles match, he loses cleanly to friggin' Chains. Way to get the guy over. But speaking of Death Valley, no sooner does the match end than the sweatpants-wearing Undertaker enters the ring, chokeslams both men, and tosses them both out to the floor. To which I wonder, if that was going to happen anyway, why not just have Taker interrupt the match for a DQ finish so the draws didn't have to lose cleanly? Seems like a strange decision. Also, I can't believe that I just advocated for more DQ finishes in the Attitude Era, but apparently that's what it's come to, folks. So anyway, Taker looks into the camera and yells, I want McMahon, as we go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, Taker is still standing in the ring waiting for Vince. However, we then see footage on the Titan Tron of Vince, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe backstage, hobnobbing with some muckety-mucks who will presumably be presenting him with the aforementioned Humanitarian of the Year Award. An angry Undertaker then exits the ring and starts walking backstage, presumably ready to present Vince with the Dick Kicking of the Year Award. Up next, D-Generation X heads to the ring, and thanks to that segment from earlier tonight, we now know that the X in their name stands for xenophobia. Everybody gets in a catchphrase, make a little noise, let's get ready to suck it, tag team champions of the world, you know the drill. Hunter starts to say that DX has unfinished business with the Nation of Domination, but he then gets cut off by hometown heroes LOD2000 and Sonny. Triple H gets in a good line and says, I'm trying to cut a promo here, but an unamused animal tells them that they beat DOA at Over the Edge, which makes them the number one contenders for the New Age Outlaws tag team titles. Hunter tells Animal to stop yelling before he has an aneurysm, and that if they wanted a shot at the titles, all they had to do was ask. However, this then brings out Skull and Eight Ball, 
on their classy Titan bikes. Skull grabs a mic as Triple H gets in another good line when he asks exactly how many microphones does the WWF own. Skull gets bleeped for saying bullshit, and he says the DOA took everything the LOD could dish out last week, but they're still standing. Not only that, but DOA did indeed beat the Outlaws cleanly in a non-title match on Raw a month or so ago, so they are still owed a title shot. Hunter says the DX needs a moment to think this over, so they all huddle together in a corner. His response is, shockingly, that all four of them can suck it. I know you didn't see that one coming. Before this turns into a massive brawl, however, a tuxedo-wearing Commissioner Slaughter comes to the ring. He says that he has made a decision and that the number one contenders for the tag titles are LOD and DOA. Tonight, in this very ring, there will be a triple threat match between these three teams, and the winning team will be the tag team champions. Slaughter exits, and Hunter then gets in one final quality line when he says that somebody else has to leave the ring because they have to go to a commercial. Clearly, he was always a good company guy. We then cut backstage where we see The Undertaker angrily throwing tables, trash cans, and chairs all over the place. Fun side note, tables, trash cans, and chairs was the original name for that match until someone decided that tables, ladders, and chairs made more sense. True story. Look it up. After a commercial break, we get another mysterious Edge vignette because they seemingly never end. This one follows the familiar pattern of him walking through the subway, randomly yelling, and running directly at the camera. However, I'm going to play the voiceover for you because this one will likely sound pretty familiar to you. You think you know me, but you will never know me. You don't know yourself. You are lost and scared. You know what I allow you to know. Up next, it's time for another match, Mark Henry versus Vader. It's important to note that this is also not a King of the Ring qualifying match. Mark Henry has already advanced by beating Terry Funk last week, and as a quick reminder, his next opponent in the tournament will be Ken Shamrock. Meanwhile, Vader will face The Rock in a qualifier sometime in the near future. And speaking of Vader, in our previous episode, you may recall that he lost to Kane at Over the Edge, and then after the match, he called himself a big piece of shit, big fat and said that Vader time may be over. Well, apparently that idea lasted all of 48 hours, because this episode of Raw was taped only two days after that promo, so clearly he reconsidered the end of Vader time pretty quickly. As an additional tidbit, Vader is back to wearing his customary red mask, so apparently Paul Bearer must have given it back to him after stealing it from him at Over the Edge. Very nice of him. Anywho, this Vader-Mark Henry match only went for a couple minutes, but we did get the nice visual of each man slamming the other one, so that was pretty cool. However, in a bit of a familiar sight, The Undertaker came to the ring, chokeslammed both men, this time actually resulting in a double disqualification, and yelled at the camera that he wants Vince McMahon. Well, if it didn't work the first time, what makes him think it's going to work this time? Also, for my money, it's a bit sad to see two 450-pound beasts used as pawns to advance an Undertaker Vince McMahon storyline, but perhaps Vince Russo is just of the opinion that both men are a big piece of shit, big fat Also, a quick shout-out to Vader, since I know he recently mentioned in 2016 that he's been having some health complications lately. We're pulling for you, big guy. 
Up next, we then cut to highlights from Over the Edge, where Mark Marrow outsmarted Sable by pretending to lay down for her, but instead rolling her up into a pinfall to score the victory and officially banish her from the WWF forever. A not-so-sympathetic Jerry the King Lawler then attempts to offer her some career advice by letting her know that Hooters is hiring, which was pretty nice of him. We then go to our next match, a King of the Ring qualifier, Dan the Beast Severn versus D'Lo Brown in a rare mustache versus mustache match. This only went about three minutes, and it was another typically slow, plodding Dan Severn match. Please don't kill me for saying that, Mr. Severn. The match ended when Severn put D'Lo in a stretched submission, which JR called a bow and arrow, where D'Lo's arm and leg were stretched backward, with Severn's knee firmly planted in D'Lo's back. Severn scored the submission victory, and he will now move on in the tournament to face D'Lo's stablemate, Owen Hart. And speaking of Owen, as soon as the match ended, he ran into the ring to hit Severn with a spinning heel kick, and then he began punching him. However, Ken Shamrock then limped down the aisle to go after the King of Hearts. Owen ran through the crowd, with Shamrock giving chase and hobbling the entire time. Back in the ring, D'Lo Brown was lying on the ground grabbing his pectoral muscle, as though Severn may have injured it with that bow and arrow submission move. Hmm. Remember that for the coming weeks, folks, because even though this match was very brief and seemingly not all that important aside from the King of the Ring aspect, the finish here is what is going to end up catapulting D'Lo Brown from that guy in the Nation of Domination to a breakout star. Stay tuned. We then kick into a tribute video for Sable, showing some of her career highlights, including powerbombing Mark Merrow, and uh, that time she dressed in a skimpy bikini at the Slammies. I'm going to give you a quick 20-second clip of the song they play, because it's so cheesy that it needs to be heard to be believed, especially when you consider that they're doing a montage for friggin' Sable. Here you go, and try not to cringe. Said our goodbyes in anger Turned and I walked away This life that I see Was not meant to be And it's burning this heart of mine Certainly some very powerful stuff there, but it makes sense considering the fact that she is now gone from the WWF forever, and she will certainly not be on Raw again next week. Our next match is Val Venus versus Dustin Runnels. Hey, remember Dustin Runnels? Yeah, he's still around. Dustin hasn't been seen on Raw for three weeks now, but if you recall the last time we saw him, he lost a two-minute match to Love, with the stipulation being that he would have to work for free for the next 30 days. Well, it has now been 21 days and this is his first televised match since then. Very nice of Vince McMahon to take it so easy on him. It's actually a bit perplexing to see how far Dustin has fallen, considering the fact that he burned his Gold Dust costume one month prior and got a huge pop from the crowd for it, and he has basically done nothing ever since. Somehow, I feel like he'll land on his feet eventually, though. As for Val Venus, his pre-match promos are starting to sound a little bit more like the Val Venus promos we eventually come to know and... love? So let's take a quick listen to this one. Hello, ladies. You know, Dennis Rodman and I have a lot in common. Bad complexion? Oh. You know, they call us both the worm. 
The only difference is, is he dominates the boards while I dominate the broads. Classic. Side note, more on Dennis Rodman a little bit later in this podcast. As for the match, it was actually a really solid five-minute encounter, but, stop me if you've heard this before, it ended when a sweatpants-wearing Undertaker entered the ring and chokeslammed both men. One amusing side note was that when Taker went to chokeslam Dustin the first time, Dustin actually sold it as though he thought Taker was going to chop him, so he fell to the ground back first instead of remaining standing to take the chokeslam. You would think that Dustin would have caught on by now since this is the third time tonight that Taker has started a chokeslam party, but apparently he didn't get the idea. And hey, it was pretty funny to watch him missell it. Eventually, though, they did repeat the spot, and Taker hit him with a chokeslam the second time around. Taker then headed backstage once again after seemingly having accomplished, well, nothing. We then cut to a pre-taped segment with Doc Hendricks, and I have to admit, I was pretty surprised to see this because I didn't even realize that Michael P.S. Hayes was still doing this goofy character at this point in time. X-Pac and the New Age Outlaws interrupt his shilling of WWF merchandise to spray him with Super Soakers, and then they force the cameraman to read a promo for Super Soaker off the teleprompter, so I guess they snuck in earlier and put it in there? As you might expect, they don't care for the cameraman's line reading, so they spray him as well. They have two words for you. Soak it. I, however, have eight words for you. Why didn't the WWE Network edit this out? And speaking of DX, it is now time for our triple threat WWF tag team title match. Champions, the New Age Outlaws, versus LOD 2000, versus Disciples of Apocalypse members Skull and 8-Ball. Before the match begins, however, we cut backstage where The Undertaker has found Commissioner Slaughter. Taker asks him where Vince is, but Slaughter says he doesn't know, so Taker proceeds to beat the crap out of him, including ripping off his tuxedo. I'm beginning to think they should have just dedicated this entire episode of Raw to The Undertaker randomly beating the crap out of innocent people, because I really feel like they probably could have filled 90 minutes worth. Back in the arena, with the match about to begin, we see that Triple H and X-Pac are sitting in chairs at the top of the ramp, and they have some signs which they have made to heckle the competitors in the ring. I posted a picture of my favorite one on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, and it simply said, Where's Rocco? In case you aren't familiar with Rocco, please allow me a quick deviation here, but I promise it's worth it. During a segment on WWF Superstars in June of 1992, the Legion of Doom and Paul Ellering visited some torn-down buildings in Chicago in an attempt to reconnect with their roots. While digging through some wreckage, Ellering came across a ventriloquist dummy and wondered who it was, and the Legion of Doom then told him that Rocco was who they would talk to when the other one wasn't around. Yes, that's right the badass road warriors used to play with puppets. And sure enough, at SummerSlam 1992, when the Legion of Doom and Ellering make their entrances on their motorcycles, you can actually see Rocco sitting on the front of Ellering's bike. Obviously, this was a ploy to sell some Rocco memorabilia and make LOD more kid-friendly, but they were gone from the WWF shortly thereafter anyway. So I guess what I'm saying is, the fact that Triple H reminded us all of Rocco is pretty awesome. But now, back to the triple threat tag team title match. As a quick reminder, this is one fall to a finish and not an elimination match, so in theory, the Outlaws could lose their titles while standing on the ring apron because only two people can be in the ring together at any given time. First off, if you're a fan of moves not being sold, you may enjoy this encounter. 
Early on in the match, Skull no-sold a delayed suplex from Hawk, popping right back up and hitting him with a clothesline, but then Hawk popped right back up from that clothesline as well. Putting over your opponents? Overrated. The match went for about seven and a half minutes, with most of it being dominated by the more powerful LOD and DOA. Not all that great. Toward the end of the match, when Animal and Billy Gunn were in the ring, Animal then tagged in Road Dog, and referee Jimmy Corderas informed the Outlaws that they would now have to fight each other because they were both the legal men. And, well, take a listen to what happens from here. The rest of you two guys gotta go at it! Well, I don't understand this at all. Well, they've both been tagged in by other members in this match! I got that part, Einstein. I still don't get it. Well, if you had a brain, you'd be an idiot, but come on! These guys have got to wrestle! In case you couldn't figure it out from that clip, Road Dog simply dropped down to the canvas and allowed Billy Gunn to pin him, which resulted in the New Age Outlaws retaining their WWF tag team titles. Actually, that's a pretty brilliant move there. And yes, for those of you scoring at home, this is the match which necessitated the creation of the Outlaw Rule, where one wrestler in a tag match cannot simply pin his own partner in order to pick up the victory for the team. Of course, that rule gets created further down the line. For this match, it worked perfectly, and the Outlaws have outsmarted their opponents once again. However, this match is not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. In fact, one particular person who is at ringside is coming under quite a bit of scrutiny for her actions earlier in the day. Here's a quick excerpt from the June 15th, 1998 edition of the Wrestling Observer. Sonny showed up six hours late for the Raw taping in Rockford, Illinois on June 2nd and was heavily fined. She's definitely in the doghouse. It's almost impossible for her to not look good, but she came as close to being able to not look good as it's possible for her to do so at that taping. Side note, what a terribly worded sentence that is. We've heard so many different stories as to why she pulled herself away from wrestling for a few weeks that you can't give credence to any of them. So there you have it, Sunny is once again getting quite a bit of heat, and let's just say that the clock on her WWF career is rapidly ticking down. We then cut backstage where we see three cars full of police officers pulling up to the arena, presumably to ensure that there will be no interference during Vince McMahon's ceremony. Either that, or they just received a call about an unarmed African-American teenager wearing a hoodie. One or the other. One or the other. When we cut back to the arena, we see that Al Snow and Head are approaching the commentator's table, with Head wearing a bow tie and Al sporting a classy jacket with a tuxedo drawn on it. Al is still asking Jerry Lawler to facilitate a meeting between him and Vince McMahon, but before Al can get anywhere with the king, some security guards grab him and escort him out of the arena through the crowd. On the plus side, at least he wasn't offending any foreign people this week. And now it's time for our main event Humanitarian of the Year ceremony. Strangely, the ring ropes are now covered in tinsel, even though this episode of Raw is taking place in early June. Kevin Kelly introduces Vince, who comes to the ring accompanied by Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. Two men are already standing in the ring, and one of them is holding a plaque. We get a quick cut backstage again, where we see that the large group of police officers has now surrounded The Undertaker, and there is clearly no possible way he can get himself out of that pickle. Back to the ring, Kevin Kelly introduces us to tonight's, quote, honored guest, Stone Cold Steve Austin. The WWF champion emerges from backstage wearing his usual black vest and jean shorts, but he's also amusingly wearing a black tie around his neck with no shirt. 
I mean, hey, if you call an event a black tie affair, you can't fault Austin for finding a loophole. Kevin introduces us to the first presenter, former New York Giant defensive end George Martin, not to be confused with Game of Thrones author George R.R. Martin, although I would have much preferred to see him here instead. George thanks Vince for his donation to his charity, Minority Athletes Networking, but then he says that the contribution was actually significantly less than what Vince had promised it would be, and it took multiple attempts for the check to clear. To which I say, why is he giving a Humanitarian of the Year award to Vince if he's just going to belittle him? Were all of the other candidates for the award somehow even shittier? George eventually does present the plaque to Vince, but not before saying that his favorite WWF superstar is Stone Cold Steve Austin, which of course causes Austin to look on smugly in Vince's direction. We then go to our next presenter, Chicago Bears running back Darnell Autry, who is representing the George Hallis Walter Payton Foundation, and for the record, these are actual charities, by the way. Autry says he's going to present Vince with a plaque as well, even though he doesn't remember him giving a check to the foundation. I thought this was supposed to be a ceremony, but apparently it looks like it's turning into a roast. Vince then grabs the mic and thanks them for the awards, while also thanking the fans as well. He proclaims himself to be incredibly generous, and the proof of that can be seen in the fact that he has invited Stone Cold to attend the ceremony, despite their recent difficulties. Interestingly, Vince then says that in the future, he will put these awards on the wall inside the WWF Hall of Fame, but fast forward 18 years later, and we are still waiting for there to be an actual physical building. While Vince is talking, Austin then walks up behind him and picks his pocket, pulling out $1,200. He then hands the money over to Darnell Autry on behalf of Vince, which was pretty amusing. He then says that he doesn't know if Vince should be Humanitarian of the Year, but he asks the crowd to give him a hell yeah if they think Vince should win Jackass of the Year. You can probably guess how the crowd responds. Austin's music plays, but then... The lights go out. The Undertaker's music then begins playing instead, as four druids carry a casket down the aisle. Once they put the casket on the ring apron, we see Mankind emerge from under the ring to jump Austin from behind. The casket then opens, and it was actually Kane inside, not his brother. Kane and Mankind then proceed to beat the crap out of Austin as Vince, the Stooges, and Paul Bearer look on happily. Kane rolls Austin inside the casket and lights the turnposts on fire, and that is how we go off the air. Very interesting ending there, and quite a bit more to discuss, but for now, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed MCs back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slam it like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they clucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap Last week, Raw scored an easy ratings victory over Nitro, 4.35 to 3.72. This week, however, with Raw being pre-taped and Nitro being live as usual, WCW was able to regain some momentum. Nitro's rating bumped up from a 3.72 to a 4.12, but Raw narrowly picked up the victory by scoring a 4.26. As you can tell, the battle is still very competitive, even though the WWF has been winning almost every week lately. And on that note, here is what you could have been watching over on Nitro instead. Yuji Nagata defeated Jerry Flynn. 
Horus and Reese defeated Juventud Guerrera and Van Hammer, and FYI, in case you were wondering who Reese was, you may know him better by this name. And the Yeti! Look at the size of the Yeti! Eddie Guerrero defeated Scott Putsky by disqualification. Booker T defeated Chris Benoit to even their best-of-seven series at 3-3. Three three. Fit Finley defeated Norman Smiley to retain his world television title. Dean Malenko defeated Disco Inferno to retain his cruiserweight title. And Goldberg defeated Chavo Guerrero to retain his United States championship. One of the other big stories of the night was that Sting, who had just joined the Wolfpack one week prior, cut a promo for the first time in almost two years after having been silent, brooding crow Sting for so long. In addition, he also changed from black and white face paint to red and black instead, which, if I'll be honest, kinda looks like shit. I would play his promo for you, but it's really not all that good or eventful. He basically just calls out the giant and mocks him for having a, quote, big fat booty. All right then. But now for the other big story. One day before this episode of Nitro, the Chicago Bulls defeated the Utah Jazz by the ridiculously lopsided score of 96-54 to take a 2-1 lead in the NBA Finals. The Bulls then had a scheduled practice today, but it turns out that one member of the team decided to skip out on that practice. That team member was Dennis Rodman. Much to the surprise of his teammates, instead of preparing for their next game, Rodman instead went to go hang out with Hulk Hogan on Monday Nitro. I'm also going to repeat the fact that the Bulls were currently in the fucking NBA Finals. This wasn't like he blew off a practice for a meaningless early season game against the Timberwolves. He blew off practice with the Bulls two wins away from the NBA championship. And at this time, he had a teammate by the name of Michael Jordan, who, you may have heard, is one of the most intense competitors to ever play professional sports, so I can only imagine how he felt about Rodman blowing off the Bulls when they were on the verge of winning their third straight title. So what did the worm do on Nitro on this night? Well, for starters, WCW was not content just to spend a crapload of money on Rodman. They also brought in ring announcer Michael Buffer for the sole purpose of introducing Hogan and Rodman for a promo. Can't imagine why this company is out of business. Later in the night, we saw Hogan and Rodman backstage partying with some women, and Hogan then quipped that being with them was worth missing practice over. So fuck you, Air Jordan. The night ended with Diamond Dallas Page teasing that he would join the Wolfpack, but before he could give an official commitment, Hogan and Rodman jumped him from behind and smacked him with chairs. Ah, if only DDP had a basketball player of his own to watch his back, maybe he would have stood a chance, but clearly that would just be too ridiculous to ever happen. And with that being said, let's go to the Raw Synopsis. To be honest, this week's show was a pretty big step backwards compared to some of the recent episodes of Raw. Basically, the entire show is skippable, and it's really only noteworthy for the Outlaws forcing the creation of a new rule in wrestling, and the beginning of the greatest angle of D'Lo Brown's career, but even that won't officially be taking off for a few more weeks. The main event segment was pretty good, with Vince McMahon being portrayed as even more manipulative for having turned his own charitable ceremony into an excuse to get one-up on Stone Cold yet again, and I did pop for the revelation that Kane and Mankind are now working together under the tutelage of Paul Bearer. Overall, however, I would say that you could completely skip this episode of Raw and its 146 Undertaker run-ins. Here's hoping that the WWF doesn't fall into the familiar pattern of mailing in the pre-taped Raws like they had been doing up until they took control of the ratings war. On this night, I know it's sacrilege, 
but I dare say that I probably would have preferred to watch Nitro. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so now I leave you with a clip of that aforementioned moment when Paul Ellering, Hawk, and Animal found their ventriloquist dummy Rocco in a pile of abandoned rubble in their native Chicago. I apologize in advance because the audio quality is a bit scratchy, but I feel the need to play it for you because it may be the saddest moment in the Legion of Doom's career, and that's including the drug abuse. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. That's Rocco! Remember that guy we told you about? Holy fuck! Look at this! And this whole place of mess is hard remains you pick up something that are our past! Where'd you find him? I can't believe this. This is the guy we toasted to all these nights. Every night. Here's Mr. Rocco. Rocco. You never knew who he was. Paul, remember, we were little kids. I kept telling you, remember? I we were little kids. The, the great little Legion of Doomers play with now. All the little hawk and animal wrestling buddies. All those dolls everybody knocked out and beats up. This was our wrestling buddy right here. Rocco, we were little kids. When I didn't want to talk to my parents, or I couldn't find Hawk. I'd tell this guy what was going on, and he'd set me straight and tell me what was right and what was wrong. Yeah, well, Rocco's the guy that taught you to be a team. He taught the animal and the hawk to be a team. He was your teacher in the school of hard knocks. I remember you telling me that. Yeah, Paul, he ain't looking too good right now. He needs some work. You know, this is the best thing that ever happened. I really like this. I think this is the best thing to ever happen to the Legion of Doom. Rocco, let me bring Rocco to the ring so that you will never forget your past. Let's bring him everywhere with us. Let's clean him up. Let's do it now.